0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. It would be a bit too easy to just blame Joe Biden for backups now being experienced at ports, but he does bear some responsibility. As to the bulk of the problems now being caused at key shipping points in the U.S., its trade rules larded up with special interest favors, unions that have resisted mechanization, and other regulatory handouts that have made the U.S. ports among the least efficient in the world. Cato's Scott Lindseham comments Scott as best as you can tell why are Americans in particular having trouble purchasing and receiving in a timely fashion goods that they would like to purchase from overseas
1: sure so some of it is just um the pandemic doing its thing um Over the last year or so, um, there have been really substantial imbalances um, in uh, national supply and demand patterns. Um, You know, our our global supply chains developed over decades um, based on somewhat predictable and consistent patterns of supply and demand. You know, sure, uh, import and export volumes would change every year a little, but uh, shipping companies and trains and truckers and all those links in the supply chain could kind of figure things out. And they set levels for that. Well, a global pandemic hits and all of a sudden economies are closing down and reopening. Uh, Countries. Are getting vaccinated at different times. um, And all of this is going to have uh, an impact on those supply and demand patterns. Uh, You combine that with um, an increase in the United States in Americans' uh, desire for goods and comfort and comfort with e commerce. And you have jacked up that demand even more. Um, And then you have that demand hitting some pretty significant. Supply issues in places, um, particularly in Asia, that have adopted really onerous COVID mitigation strategies, zero COVID policies, that essentially shut down ports and factories uh, when there's an outbreak. Um, so all of that together is inevitably going to put stress on the supply chain. And so a lot of this is just, again, the pandemic doing its thing. But uh, the, there there are also a lot of government and other policies that are adding to our supply chain woes and that's i think what's what's the more important lesson for for policy world on this is that um yeah you know our supply chain did develop over decades but it developed in uh, in significant part uh in response to um policies that we've put in place that have actually and intentionally decreased uh, efficiency and flexibility in the system. And so I'll give you a, a couple examples. Um, I think one of the big ones is at the ports. Um, the longshoremen unions there have, uh, immense leverage um through uh because they they essentially control all the labor particularly on on the west coast but even on the east coast even in right-to-work states they have a lot of power um which of course enforced through things like the national labor relations board and the rest and they have not only have negotiated contracts with high wages um but there's a lot of inflexibility in the system so very regimented shifts time and a half for nights and weekends um and difficulty of adding uh, additional unionized workers. Uh, but the bigger thing, I think, is that uh, these contracts specifically prohibit automation. So uh, you combine all these things together and U.S. ports are some of the least efficient in the world. Uh, there was a World Bank ranking uh, a year ago that that ranked Los Angeles and Long Beach about 330th out of 350 Ports around the world, um, even uh, our more efficient ports, uh, don't even crack the top fifty, and so we have a syst- we have a very inefficient port system now combined and and so our trucking system, our trains, all of that really uh, have grown around very inefficient ports that you know in in bad times, that didn't really matter much, or in good times, that didn't really matter much. But when things get stressed, you know a- additional efficiency would be would be useful. Now, compounding that are a lot of other policies in there. Um, for example, uh, the the good old Jones Act, which, you know, restricts uh, the coastwise shipping between US ports uh, to American owned and invested in flagged vessels. Well, uh, the Jones Act has made coastwise shipping really cost prohibitive. So nobody does it. You, nobody ships, even though it should be the most efficient way to ship, say, an orange from Florida to Boston. Uh, nobody does it because it's really expensive. Well, that means that uh, it puts additional pressure on rail and trucking capacity. So that orange is now on a truck going up I-95. We have trade policies that uh, our anti-dumping and countervailing duty system, which is essentially on autopilot. Uh, we just slapped tariffs of 221% on chassis from china the largest producer of chassis now chassis are what trucks use you put a container on the chassis the truck links up to the chassis and hauls it off right well we're actually having a chassis shortage right now and uh trucking trucking companies freight companies aren't going to buy additional chassis from china there's not enough domestic production um and because of these of these tariffs and they're the law Totally prohibits the government from uh, suspending or delaying these duties, uh, or even considering broader economic harms when applying. And they just they just automatically, in the middle of a shipping crisis in May, slapped 221 percent tariffs on on chassis.
0: So a lot of these decisions that were made at some point in the past, not during a uh, supply crunch, or not during a global pandemic, have essentially taken off the table decisions that individual market actors might like to have made to uh, deal with and effectively get their jobs done.
1: Exactly. And another big one. So, you know, there's a worker shortage all over the country. And uh, if you talk to uh, industry experts, logistics pros, they say that one of the big challenges that the supply chains are having right now they can't get enough workers at the warehouses. Uh, they can't find enough truckers to haul haul goods. So that, of course, causes containers to back up at the ports. The ports move even slower. Well, um, we have a backlog of about 1.2 million immigrants uh, that have been issued visas but haven't been uh, allowed in the country, per our colleague David Beer. Goldman Sachs estimates that that is putting substantial pressure on, on the labor shortage that we're having due to some COVID factors as well. Um, and again, it's contributing to these supply chain problems. Now, another thing we've done is that uh, the U.S. government negotiated as part of the NAFTA um, that we would allow trucks from Mexico, so Mexican freight companies, to operate on U.S. roads. So essentially hauling goods from Mexico to the United States or hauling goods in the United States. So Mexican trucking companies were supposed to be allowed to access the U.S. market. It's a free trade agreement, right? That would be one of the provisions. Well, the United States has never implemented this fully, uh, due in large part to opposition from the Teamsters Union and other trucking companies. Um, Well, this uh even, oh, and I should add, we had a pilot program that checked the safety and environmental compliance of these Mexican trucking companies, and they were found to be very safe. Uh, to have very few problems. Um, well, you know what? The, those restrictions, uh, have, have added additional, uh, supply constraints. And they've done it in two ways. I mean, one, uh, Mexican trucks, uh, and truckers that could be hauling goods between, say, uh, a port and a warehouse in, in the United States, they can't, they can't haul those goods. They're prohibited. But another thing is that the system now requires Mexican trucking companies to drop their goods at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then a U.S. truck picks it up at the border and then hauls it off. Well, that, of course, absorbs additional U.S. trucking capacity that could have, again, been been inland somewhere, um, uh, soaking up some of this uh, excess demand we're seeing right now. So, again... Uh, it's it's not that these things were uh, implemented during the pandemic. I mean, other than the tariffs, but they all have served to create a system that is more fragile, uh, less flexible um, than than it should be, and thus exacerbating our supply chain
0: crisis. So, the U.S. Congress, as we as you will hear on this podcast repeatedly, has for decades delegated a whole lot of powers. With respect to trade and uh, immigration uh, and a number of other issues. So, with the toolkit that the president now has, and we can argue about whether it's appropriate for him to have that or not, with that toolkit, what can the president do right now without right. any help to make things easier? For producers and consumers to shake hands and be happy and transfer goods and money back and forth,
1: you know, unfortunately, there aren't a ton of things he can do. Um, the, the 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 two things that I think he that he can do with the stroke of a pen are to nix. President Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum and on Chinese goods. So those chassis tariffs I mentioned, there are an additional 25% tariffs uh, under Section 301 of the U.S. law, which which President Biden could remove with a stroke of a pen. Now, that isn't going to solve the supply chain problems, but it's at least going to put a little downward pressure on prices and a little help for manufacturers. You know, manufacturers right now are paying hand over fist in terms of shipping costs and raw materials costs. So that'll help a little bit. Uh, but, but Biden can't actually touch those 200% tariffs. The law and Congress has made sure, you know, Congress has delegated a lot of tariff imposing authority. It hasn't imposed as much uh, tariff removal authority, which is quite telling. Honestly, um, and so unfortunately, those are are just going to be they're they're going to be here. They're kind of cemented, and there's a process for removing them, but that that takes some time. But I'll tell you another thing that Biden could do, and. Uh, hopefully we'll do is, uh, these uh, immigrant visas, right? I mean, these are, these are, uh, consulate offices and, uh, immigrants that have been vetted, um, and U.S. consulate offices that, that should be open when I mean, we have widely available vaccines. Um, and, you know, we, we should be uh, uh at this point you know uh processing these visas and letting these these people come here and work here um and so you know again david uh had a, on your podcast i believe you know talked about some of the things biden could do quite quickly to alleviate some uh, of the worker shortage there um but uh, you know unfortunately beyond that you know i think that biden deserves a little bit of credit uh trying to get the ports to stay open 24/7 i'm sure he worked out some deal with the longshoreman union to get that um but what we've seen and what the ports and industry experts have said is that that's really just going to be a drop in the bucket. And and again, uh, not to sound like a broken record, it's because the system evolved over a long period of time to reflect inefficiencies at the ports, and you can't just snap your fingers and suddenly have... Uh, port capacity, uh, shipping container capacity, uh, trucking capacity to reflect a more efficient port system. It's just it's going to take uh, some time um, and hopefully uh, we'll we'll see some movement there. And, and hopefully, you know, Congress will learn some lessons on on things we reforms we need to make.
0: Scott Linsicum is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.